Support for this podcast comes from the Florida Atlantic University College of Business, home to over 8,000 students, seven departments, six centers, and an impressive offering of interdisciplinary and professional development programs taught by the college's world-class faculty. Learn more at business.fau.edu. Hello, I'm Jen Mullins. And I'm Ryan Swano, and this is what's happening at FAU Business. On this episode, we welcome back FAU's Dr. Jennifer Atanito, an instructor and researcher in the Health Administration Program, which is part of the larger management programs department at FAU Business. During the podcast, we discuss healthcare, the future of public health, and how the current pandemic might be causing change in both sectors. For more information about FAU's Health Administration Program, visit business.fau.edu slash health. And if you'd like to hear our previous three episodes with Dr. Atanito about the coronavirus, you can find those at business.fau.edu slash podcasts. Thanks for listening and enjoy the episode. Dr. Atanito, thanks for joining us again. I know we last spoke in what I think was early April. So do you want to just give us a quick update as to the state of the pandemic in the U.S.? Uh, yeah, sure. It's nice to be back again. Good to talk to you. Great to have you. So obviously in the last couple of months since we last talked, a lot's happened. Things have changed dramatically. We keep getting new information, right? Um, so I'll do my best. Certainly the U.S. is still has, still has the highest number of cases. We have over 2 million cases in the United States and Brazil has started to catch up a bit. Within our borders, the states, New York, New Jersey, and California have had the largest number of cases. And even though Florida is like I think the third most populous state, we're still only uh, number eight in terms of the most cases. So for a number of reasons. So that's that's some good news, I guess. The case fatality rates at this point are hovering around four to five percent. I think, I'm not sure if that's globally or within, I think that's in the US. But as, as we continue to test, certainly the case fatality rates decrease some. The incidence rates, which is the rate of new cases, uh, it varies, obviously, every week. So Palm Beach County, for example, the percent positive tests fluctuate, have fluctuated everywhere from under 1% to over 10%. Um, Right now, we're a little high. But in the state, the percent positive is held pretty steady, around 5% positive. Um, So that's the percent of, of tests that come back positive. The number of people showing up in hospitals has remained pretty constant at pretty low levels at this point, so that's really good news. We're managing the illness better, doing a better job of protecting the most vulnerable people in our population. Uh, We have not overwhelmed our healthcare system. Um, And so that's kind of the big picture. It's not gone. It's still here, certainly still here, and we still have to keep dealing with this for some time. One of the things that's important is knowing the state of affairs where you live. So where you live certainly matters. The mortality rate of COVID in Miami is about the same as a bad flu year in Seattle. So that's kind of interesting, right? But if in places like New York or parts of Italy, the mortality rate is exceeded five times normal mortality rates, which you only see like in, in a war zone or a famine. There's, I got this from a really cool graphic in New York Times that shows the impact of COVID compared with other causes of death in history that I'm happy to share if anybody's interested. 
we were talking earlier about, um, you know, how bad is this? And the good news is this is not the one of the, uh, the most fatal illnesses out there. The Spanish flu still killed far greater number of people than we've seen with COVID. And uh, it's not expected that this virus is going to kill that number. But then again, that was 100 years ago and our healthcare systems improved dramatically since then. Um, who's affected is becoming much more apparent, and that's shining a bright spotlight on some of the shortcomings in our healthcare system. This virus has disproportionately hit minorities hardest. The CDC had conducted a study of hospitalized COVID patients during the month of March and found 33% of those hospitalized patients were Black, and that's considered disproportionate because Blacks comprise only about, I think, somewhere around 13 to 15% of the total population. The COVID deaths for Black Americans that month was 92.3 per 100,000. And if you compare that with Hispanics, they were 74.3 per 100,000, and whites were only 45.2 per 100,000. So there's a distinct imbalance right there. The reasons for this is the same reasons that uh, there's disproportion in any infectious disease that we would see. Things like residential segregation, unequal access to high-quality health care, uninsured uh, percentage un- uninsured, higher density living conditions, and higher exposure because you have to leave the house for work more likely. Um, some people have blamed health literacy as a factor, but I disagree. I think this is more about access and living conditions and survival. So we have to take a look at health equity in the healthcare system pretty quickly. I would say right now, in terms of the status of, of COVID in our population, we have the same prevention measures that we always have. Those haven't changed dramatically, and they still apply, so I'm not even going to bother reviewing. Hopefully, everyone knows by now. Um, if you want to know how cautious you need to be, you have to look at your own area. So look at the percent positive rates in your zip code. Look at the total number of cases. And that way, you can decide what's your risk of going to back to the gym. Testing is finally fully accessible. I know when we talk talked a couple months ago, that was the biggest problem. Now we have testing right here on the FAU campus. You don't even need a referral. Wonderful news. Antibody tests also widely available. And if you want to know which ones are accurate, you can get in touch with me. I have a list. So do you think hospitals will experience permanent systematic change as a result of things learned during this pandemic? Uh, That's a good question. I don't foresee dramatic uh, really noticeable changes in healthcare delivery in terms of specifically in, in emergency management, managed to triage and and conduct treatment really well so far. I'm sure most hospitals are going to evaluate their emergency operations post-COVID uh, and make adjustments in some small ways. That's standard procedure. A major change I expect would be ensuring that all hospitals have a huge stockpile of uh, personal protective equipment. Obviously, that was a a huge issue. The shortage was really scary, um, but that's a relatively easy fix. I would say that a major change is uh, outpatient care, more likely to see a greater reliance on telemedicine. We're finding that that's working pretty well right now. We have a huge increase in acceptance of the technologies, and that might also spill over into emergency care and triage as well. What else I would say is that we have to look at the mental health of our healthcare workers who have been uh, really under fire. And so there, I'm sure that stress has taken a toll and we might see a shift change with people dropping out of that industry and new people coming in. 
this is an election year, so that's going to make a difference too. I hope that healthcare equity is is reexamined because regardless of which aisle you sit on, um, we know that it benefits all of society for the population to be healthy. This virus obviously doesn't discriminate. And is the personal protective gear, is, is there still a shortage of that or has that since been kind of remedied for the moment? It's better, but it's still a problem for sure. Uh, luckily, the dire need has stabilized in most places, but supply chain is still broken. PPE supplies are largely manufactured in China and are not distributed equally around the country. For example, I read recently that CMS said that a quarter of Florida nursing homes, for example, uh, don't have a one-week supply of the gowns and masks that they would need, and some hospital workers will wear an N95 for a full day, which is certainly not ideal. Stockpiling these supplies in the past was considered a cost-inefficient supply chain approach. And the healthcare industry instead used what we call just-in-time purchasing to control costs. Uh, but now stockpiling needs to be reconsidered, um, and that's going to require coordination at the federal level. And so now what about the, the vaccine industry? Do you think that they'll also experience some lasting change, kind of depending on what happens with a vaccine for the coronavirus? Right. I think it's a, it's a little soon to tell right now um, because we don't know if a safe and effective vaccine is going to emerge as being viable and accessible in this ridiculously small timeline that we had predicted. But if that should happen and uh, it's manufactured and distributed efficiently, it'll be unparalleled. Um, I expect if that happens, the trajectory for new vaccines going forward will change. The truth is we don't experience novel viruses too often, so this type of vaccine response isn't needed very frequently. Um, still, it's good to know that we can respond 10 times faster than we had previously thought, right? What we're seeing right now, though, is a different problem in terms of vaccination. COVID has eclipsed all the other infectious diseases, and so there have been delays in vaccinating for the usual things like measles and polio and cholera and HPV, and vaccinologists are expecting upticks in these diseases, uh, especially in developing countries. And there are, I found out there are 23 countries right now who have suspended their measles vaccine campaigns, and that's really concerning. Oh, wow. Yeah. In places uh, like here, we're seeing more vaccine avoidance because people don't want to go out and go to the doctor. They're afraid of uh, exposure. Um, so we have to ed educate the population about maintaining regular vaccinations, like including the flu vaccine, because you don't want to get the flu and COVID at the same time, which is entirely possible. Assuming a vaccine becomes available, it's still going to be a pretty tough sell. I read an article in JAMA the other day that in order for this to be effective for, you know, herd immunity, we have to have under, we can't tolerate more than a 10% refusal rate for those eligible to take the vaccine because there are going to be a number of people who are not eligible. And in order to protect them, that's a very high bar to, to keep. So it's going to take a lot of promotion and we're going to have to ensure the population that it's safe, right? And they have to, we have to, they have to feel comfortable with the healthcare system. The article's excellent, by the way, if anybody's interested in that as well. I've got all kinds of resources today. It addresses also issues related to the mistrust of medical community and need for race concordance among African Americans and their providers due to obvious longstanding and warranted mistrust in the American healthcare system. So we talked about health delivery and the private sector. 
But what about public health? Do you foresee changes in that sector? I do. Uh, I do see some more distinct changes in public health. Um, but again, the presidential administration is going to matter a lot in that area because obviously public health relies on government funding. Uh, right. The priorities of the administration are going to make a big difference. Um, we saw early on in the pandemic and continuing now as well, the current administration opted for more public-private response, so a partnership. Um, in terms of responding to the health crisis. And since then, also, Trump chose to cut funding for World Health Organization. So the priority of public health is a little unclear, and it's hard to say how much emphasis is going to be placed on public health given another term. A lot of people pointed the finger at the CDC in terms of responding to COVID and the slow rollout of testing. They weren't entirely to blame. Uh, the pandemic response team had been dismantled in 2018, so there might have been confusion regarding who was responsible and what steps to take. But I imagine that, of course, the CDC is reevaluating all of this under these circumstances. They're going to be making dramatic changes in terms of how to respond to a pandemic because mistakes were made. Further down the road, I expect that there's going to be a great deal of funding going towards public health research related to uh, emergency procedures and pandemic response. So if that's your field and you're looking for NIH funding for that, I imagine there's going to be rollout there. There's going to be research in emergency procedures, psychosocial impacts of the pandemic, prevention interventions, etc. I also see more emphasis on communications between countries, organizations, municipalities, and states. In some ways, our, the disjointed response that we've seen has been somewhat effective because what works in one place doesn't necessarily work somewhere else. But on the other hand, there's been inconsistent public communication, which led to a great deal of confusion and poor cohesion between global stakeholders and within our country in terms of activating like a concerted response. And that also contributed to that bigger picture of mistrust of the, uh, of the healthcare system and public health. So those are some changes I expect. So in terms of uh, training, do you see that the pandemic is also going to maybe impact or cause for a revision somewhat of public health curricula and healthcare, um, or has that already been a key focus of, of training for folks in that industry? Um, I'd say both. Uh, yes, it's been a focus, and yes, there'll be some changes. Um, healthcare trainees all, uh, already have thorough training in infectious disease management. Public health professionals also fully trained in response and prevention to pandemics. But that said, those efforts are going to be amplified, I'm certain of it. I expect that in both the healthcare and public health sectors, more emphasis is going to be placed on training the new professionals in the incident command procedures. I can actually say, going through my PhD in public health, I had minimal training in incident command procedures, and I imagine that, will, that, that that's going to be amplified a great deal. Um, medical and nursing students are probably going to learn more about managing the severe symptoms of this unusual virus um, that have been very hard to treat. And public health trainees are likely to learn more about public communications, right? So we said that there was some poor, poor communications taking place. We're still only a few months into this pandemic. Um, so there's a lot that's going to be learned as we go forward and do more research. And this research is really going to be key in terms of developing an evidence base that's going to guide medical and public health education going forward. So focusing on the general public, do you think masks in public places will be with us longer than we may anticipate? 
Um, not from what I'm seeing out there so far. <laughs> um, I think we discussed in an earlier podcast, the U.S. is not like other countries and we don't follow rules very well. So without having direct instruction or penalties for disobedience, America's Americans are going to drop those masks like the disease never existed. Um, right. I mentioned previously we're in pretty good shape in many areas of Florida so far, but there's been a, a slight increase in new cases because we've reopened uh, most of our businesses, So, which was to be expected to some degree. Um, so we can't let our guards down too fast. And without some degree of social distancing and avoiding of crowds, wearing masks indoors and hand washing, those cases are going to keep growing. And we're going to be back where we started. And we've seen other places that have su successfully reopened and uh, maintained their uh, protective behaviors. The good news is that over the past few months, we have grown more accustomed to this. So everyone does have their mask in their car, ready to pop it on when they when they go into CVS. And if we can keep that up, we can keep the cases low and keep businesses open, or we're going to have to go back to shelter in place. And that would, you know, suck. <laughs> but we survived it once. If we have to do it again, we will. <laughs> True. So going to the more high-tech gear that we all carry, how do you think that phones or apps will play a future role um, in this kind of situation? Well, I mean, I see, certainly I mentioned telemedicine. I think that's where we're, one area that we're, we're going to continue to see growth. That type of remote consultation before COVID was really hard to get moving. And if you've ever heard of the diffusion of innovations model, you could say that everyone was kind of a laggard in that technology. But when COVID arrived, suddenly everyone became an early adopter. So that when we needed it, it was forced. So I, I, I foresee improved virtual consultation technology, technologies emerging and better reimbursement methods also for, for remote consultation going forward. I also see, I mean, we're, we're going to be using our handheld devices for uh, contact tracing as well. But I want to dispel a myth about that because when we hear contact tracing, people get a little nervous. Um, it sounds very dicey. But it's a really old, tried and true epidemiologic mechanism for disease containment. For the most part, when someone's infected, you draw an invisible circle around them and their contacts, and it works. A person's notified that they might have been exposed, and they get tested and change their behavior. So it's really self-monitoring, and it's not a spy game. But now we do have our electronic technologies that make us more vulnerable to privacy breaches. And I feel confident, though, that the, that the good outweighs this risk. Using mobile technologies to conduct these contact notifications saves a huge amount of what we call shoe leather epi. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. No. Um, meaning you don't need a bunch of boots on the ground knocking on doors to tell people. Um, so that is, that's an old-fashioned, slow, and cost-inefficient approach. So we really need to use these technologies to make that happen. Right now, I know that the CDC Apple Google app that's being developed for this contact tracing, I don't know where it stands right now. I don't know if you guys do, um, but it's another interesting public-private response to COVID. And my understanding is that it's intended to be very secure and anonymous and designed only for the purpose of notifying people if they should get tested. I was looking at the COVID-19 app on my phone, but this one allows me to put in my symptoms and tells me, yes, you should see a doctor or no. So in terms <laughs> no, of- that's the not the one. <laughs> <laughs> this is a different one. <laughs> so in terms of the tracing, is this a situation where we're going to have to voluntarily say, sure, we'll give you our device and you can, or is this going to be sort of 
maybe like forced under the hood. I'm wondering like what's allowed here. Yeah, I so um, I'm not sure what's allowed and I'm not sure if it's going to be forced. My guess is no, I don't think it can be forced. I think this is going to be an optional app. And if you uh, do opt into it, if you test positive, you uh, it does. It's some sort of uh, sort of I don't know much about technology, I'm afraid, some sort of GPS monitoring. So that way it tra- it tracks how close you've been to different people and, and the other people have to have the apps as well. So anyone else with an app would uh, be notified like a beep, beep, uh, you came close to somebody who tested positive, you should go get tested. So oh, it seems wow. obvious that you would want, ideally you would want everybody to use this because if there's only 5% of the people using it, you obviously <laughs> it's way less effective than if everybody opted in. I'm, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it would probably be more effective if it is forced. I just don't know right. the legalities of that. Right. It could be interesting, though. Yeah. You're on Target and everybody's phone starts beeping because somebody's... <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So, is there any reason to believe that pandemics like this will continue to occur in the future? Uh, there is most... Definitely a reason we should expect more of this in the future, I'm afraid. Uh, We've already experienced three coronavirus outbreaks in the past 17 years. And even though this one is maybe the least deadly, it's definitely the most widespread. In addition, we've also seen uh, the HIV pandemic going back 40 years uh, and Ebola continues to rear its ugly head. And all of these all of them, coronaviruses, HIV, Ebola, are they're all called zoonoses. These are animal-borne diseases, and they're linked directly to human environmental issues, unfortunately. Um, I know people get a little prickly when you talk about environment, but we kind of have to deal with that. Um, the coronavirus, among even Lyme disease as well, emerge from what we what are collisions in ecosystems essentially that result from things like poor, poorly regulated animal trade, deforestation, uh, large livestock farms. So if we can make improvements in things like reforestation, reduction of animal farming, we could very well see fewer of these zoonoses going forward over time, especially the novel ones. And that's, so this is possible, it's possible to prevent if we make changes. I'm by no means an ardent ardent environmentalist myself, but maybe I need to be. One thing individuals can do right now is begin reducing some of our reliance on animal products. And so, I mean, that's what has been found. Of course, that's a tough, another tough sell. I recommend this 4th of July that you barbecue some Beyond Meat burgers at your socially distant fireworks event. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Dr. Atenito, thanks so much for joining us again. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I love talking to you guys. You mentioned you. the you mentioned the FAU testing area where somebody could go and get tested Absolutely. and see if they have coronavirus. Do you happen to have any more info about that? Yes, it's actually at Tech Runway uh, on the oh, north okay. side of campus. Yep. And I think you need an appointment. I'm not sure, but you don't need a referral. So anybody can go. All right. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Take care. What's Happening at FAU Business is part of the FAU College of Business podcast network. Learn more at business.fau.edu slash podcasts.